0: Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, the podcast which tells the stories behind the food, linking what we eat to who we are. This week I'm with Ollie Hunter, activist, chef and hyper-local champion whose restaurant Wheat Chief near Hungerford won the Sustainable Restaurant's Business of the Year award in 2019. A Master Chef finalist in 2013, he's a philosopher, an alchemist and a revolutionary. And his latest book, Join the Greener Revolution, is his second version of his manifesto, To Eat to Save the Planet.
1: I'd call it a moral renaissance. It's the creativity that we had back in the renaissance period, but with such a moral, ethical code that there's no falter between what we're trying to do. Your ambition is so direct. And it's full of creativity, that it's just explosive in its diversity, it's explosive in its products and its flavour and everything we create. It's, it's going to be, I think it's going to be the most exciting period humanity's ever been through.
0: I asked him how much his award meant to his customers.
1: Oh, well, that's a, that's a good, good question. I mean, for me, the SRA have, have always been the sort of fairy godmothers of the restaurant world sort of guide us and protect us on that sustainable journey. Um, and I think one of the things that they've been trying to do over the last 10 years to get more of that customer facing presence uh, for themselves and for us um, but yeah I mean it's it's such one of those things that you can say to a customer and say we've now won an award it's the most sustainable business you know we're not just making this up this is a real thing and this isn't just a you know if you ever walk down brick lane and every Indian restaurant always says best voted best restaurant doesn't it in brick lane and obviously someone's uncle's done that but when you've got an organization an accreditation who's given that to you you can shout it out from the rooftops and sort of be proud of the hard work you've done and, and what you've achieved as a team. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. And the
0: things that you shout about are extraordinary. Um, you've, I mean, you're, just go through some of that. You're, the, the rose garden, the roses can be turned into rose jam, sage into a fresh pasta, Ch- chives into an emulsion with fish. What you're saying is you're taking stuff from your own land, first of all, your own garden and bringing it in. Not unusual now, but honey from Hungerford Park, uh, what else? I mean, the the, yeah. the, the furniture. The, the tell us a little bit about the things that really make you unique.
1: Yeah, I mean that is it's so it's all started with food because I think you know as as a chef and someone who just loves nature. That's the only reason why I go into food. It's because of nature and you know it's just such a beautiful place to be. Um, but once you're in that mentality of thinking differently, it is. That's why I think the books are called about revolutions. It is a revolution. It's a revelation in the head about changing the way we think. And suddenly once you 're in that mentality, everything seems to get so much easier. Everything seems to become more flavorsome or more unique uh, or more powerful and and actually it's been cheaper in the long run I mean as a business it 's an economical uh, model that i didn 't even see that coming you know we only did that to, to sort of um, you know be proud of what we 're doing and to, to get great flavor and to win awards but actually as a business we 've actually been making better money because of all these different things and that could be um, like the in-house still and in sparkling system for water that we've got, so you've got a filtered product. But on the sparkling side, it's amazing because three things happen there. One is that you're saving bottles and transport CO2 emissions. The second thing is that our staff are sort of they have a better lifestyle because they're not bringing as many bottles up from the cellar. Uh, and three, we create a unique product. So now we've got our own soft drinks. We make our homemade lemonade, homemade like rhubarb cordial in this time of year. So we've got a unique product. And I think once you go down that sustainable route, it makes you more unique. It makes your life work balance better and the product even better for the customer yeah
0: importantly you've got a lot of produce on the menu that is organic it's never going to be a hundred percent that's almost impossible isn't it but you know very often you go to a pub and you see you know local produce local seasonal produce and there's a lot of greenwashing and and it's very difficult to really kind of be completely sure that they're telling the truth Um, (laughs) with yours it's a wraparound philosophy Um, but how hard is it to get as much organic produce as you possibly can what are the issues facing publicans
1: yeah so um, part of that whole journey is just curiosity and I think most organic producers are just really good at making organic produce they don't do the marketing they're not very good at the selling bit because you know they're just really good at being on the land and creating the produce so it was all about me having to go out there and find them and once you're in that circle they all sort of tend to stick together anyway. So they they talk quite well. So once you're in there, then you can start, you open up Pandora's box and finding all the little other producers. I think sometimes it's about that commitment. It's a different way of thinking. So for me in the food world, I've had to buy better, which, okay, is a little bit more expensive, but because I'm getting straight from a farm, it's a lady called Sonia, uh, Coles Hill Organics. Um, I'm getting all the produce, so I won't just get the leek, you know, the white bits. I'll get the leek ends and everything. I'll get the carrots and the carrot tops and the beetroot tops. And because I'm using all that produce, I'm cooking zero, zero waste, I can afford organic. This is the sort of the big revelation that we've had, is that you have to, you have to change everything about the business in order to make that commitment to organic produce. Um, I guess, you know, people, another phrase we, brand, you know, we use is sort of less is more. And I think when a produce or when a product has flavor because it's been grown beautifully and it's been kept in that environment that makes it taste so much better, I don't, as a chef, I don't have to do as much to it to make the food taste good. I just, for example, let's say I'm making carrot soup. Most chefs will probably be taking a load of carrots, put some chicken stock into it to make it taste good. Whereas actually all I need is carrots because the carrot tastes so good in the first place.
0: And they really do because the soil is giving so much flavour, isn't it? That's the difference with organic produce. Yeah, so this
1: is the big thing that I think is so exciting is that we're all connected and everything is connected. So... The only way to make our lives better and ourselves better, more nutritionally, more health, you know, in health terms and everything, is to make the soil better. And the soil will affect us. And everything is all entwined. That's what's so beautiful about nature. And that's one of the things we've lost about our harmony of how we live. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the soil is, and there so much science is coming out at the moment about how important soil is in the world. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I just totally believe in organic. And then another word is regenerative agriculture. You know, it's a really big word at the moment, and it's true because we do need these accreditations to, um, to help us understand what's right and what's wrong. But at the same time, sustainability is such an open question, and there are so many, it's so unique to each piece of land. So I think regenerative agriculture is a great word to use in terms of that sustainable movement forward
0: yeah and it means that we can get on with eating well while people are going through the soil association very very heavy duty uh certification process regenerative agriculture means that it's happening now you could it's a it's a sort of much more sort of sustainable philosophy isn't it um it doesn't need the certification that um that soil association uh produce has to have
1: no not at all. it's um It encounters everything. It sort of completely goes into every way of life. And I think sometimes we create um, too many regulations that hold us back. And I think as an artist, when you get given rules, that's quite hard to go, you know what, I'm going to break those rules because this is what I know of my expression. This is my lands, And so how can I be confined by that? So there is that balance between, yes, organic is saying absolutely the right things, but the farmer will really know what's best for their land um and i think that regenerative agriculture movement forward is allowing farmers to sort of to take control back again of what they know is best um and just to listen and to express what's there in front of them
0: Yeah, I mean, I really love that phrase, shake the hand that feeds, you know, for customers to go and meet the farmers or the producers, the growers who actually make their food and talk to them about it. So it's no longer looking at if something is certified organic by the Soul Association, but actually understanding where it comes from and the philosophy behind it. And your book is very much about philosophy, isn't it? You go way beyond the food. And, you know, it is about joining the dots, isn't it? It is a proper green revolution. It goes down to the recycling of your furniture it goes to you know what you clean your pub with why did you decide to take that approach why is it so important to push that message out to the people who are interested in your food
1: um so as i was sort of saying earlier everything is connected we are all connected to everything it's a sort of a both a um uh uh in terms of matter but also on a quantum energy level it's it's just everywhere it's on a physics level um so you know, in that economical sense, I get byproducts all the time. I don't call them waste anymore. I call them byproducts. Um, so some ale might go off. So what do I do with some leftover ale? Well, I try and make it into vinegar. It's the most natural thing to do, isn't it? It's gone off, so you try to turn it into vinegar. Um, once it's been made into vinegar, you can clean things with it. And it's the perfect thing to clean urinals. Um, and I don't need cleaning products to go down those urinals anymore and because it's a natural vinegar that's been created by us it's going to go into the water system it's not going to have too much an effect on the marine biology of what's going on underneath um, and it's a natural product which will just integrate back into nature again whereas um, the more we remove ourselves from nature the more we are harming ourselves because we... Um, because we are we are putting back pollutants into the soil, which were only all the water which will come back to us eventually. Um, yeah, and you know what? It's just a bit of fun, you know, C- creating yeah. vinegar and storing it, or um, you know, bicarb. But these are things that are cheap and free and easy. And as as a as a business, it's kind of it's it's just a bit of creativity.
0: It, it's alchemy yeah. isn't it and that's what you chefs do I mean that you create stuff you put two things yeah. together and create something completely wonderful
1: <laughs> I mean so yeah my I think most of my journey in food started off from a creative background I was I was in uh, you know I went to art college art foundation and I just loved the whole creative process and it was only because of that you know I started putting food flavor pairings together that I hadn't heard of I loved just tasting as many things as I could possibly do so that whole curiosity of what I can create just stirs on and spurs me on to to do as much as I possibly can. I think there's a line in the book that says, you know, we're not defined by what we consume, but what we create. And I think that's a really yeah. great way to sort of look at life, just to say, you know, we're not consumers, we are creators. And I've been trying to um, sort of coin this phrase for a while, that, in my head, we're not consumers of energy, like we're consumers of marketing or the fashion or whatever. We are transformers. We are literally transforming energy from one place to another. So... Uh, I think we should recoin re- our that word, consumer to transformer.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and of course you you're in the. Best position in the world, aren't you? Because you are customer facing your messaging. It's a really important. I talked to lots of chefs about this: Tom Hunt, James Strawbridge, all these people who are, you know, writing their message down in manifesto terms, Tom Hunt particularly, you know, and taking it out there into his into his restaurant world and now his delivery world, and you know, putting it out there, getting people to have conversations about this. It's not good enough just to just to keep it all to yourself. And you talk, I love the stuff that you're talking about in the book Ken Robinson one of my favorites how to think I love his book you know out of our minds Um, and you talk about the circular way of thinking rather than a linear way of thinking and so many chefs I come across are don't think in a linear way. They're explosive. They, they, they're creative. They go off in all sorts of different directions, and and it's it. That's what's so exciting about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know, when you're talking about sustainability, I can't think of a better group of people to talk about <laughs> it because it's so it, it's so exciting.
1: Uh, it's uh, well, so you know, I, I said in the first book. I think we are at the start of the movement. This is one of those things we look back on, and as humanity in two hundred, three hundred, five hundred years' time, we do history lessons about this moment when suddenly we moved away from that uh, inevitable end of disaster, which is what the way we're heading, to suddenly a transformative revelation, revolution, where we become a whole new species in a way. But you know, because we've got to completely lift ourselves above our egos and our sort of consumerism to get beyond that to suddenly see the potentials of what sustainability can do for us and it is i'd call it a moral renaissance it's the creativity that we had back in the renaissance period but with such a moral ethical code that there's no falter between what we're trying to do it's just so direct as we were talking earlier like your, your ambition is so direct And it's full of creativity, that it's just explosive in its diversity, it's explosive in its products and its flavour and everything we create. It's it's going to be, I think it's going to be the most exciting period humanity's ever been through.
0: I absolutely agree with you. I think it's fantastically exciting. Um, You know, you talk about right at the beginning of the book, you talk about what is enough. It's about really rethinking what we have taken for granted. Tell me what you think is enough.
1: Oh, what is enough um so i remember writing this in it was at the same sort of time as i was thinking about the moral renaissance thing and it was um i was in florence and i was there for sort of six to eight weeks and i spent sort of two, two, two to three weeks woofing on a farm i don't know if you know what woofing is but it's yeah, the worldwide organization of organic farms and you work on the farm and you um uh, they look after you and feed you so it's a you know you don't exchange any money but you give them mm-hmm. labor and they give you food and shelter it's a lovely way to meet people and to meet you know farms and how they, farmers and how they work you know if you go to florence what you and tuscan that whole area what it does so well is just it's the simplicity of how easy it is to feel so good about something when something's so well created in the first place and florence just exudes beauty in every sort of way And I think, you know, John Keats was, you know, truth is beauty and beauty truth, that for me, I look for beauty in everything because that is the truth of life and how I see it. So um, what is enough? Enough is when beauty exudes itself in its purity and its simplicity of its artistic form or, you know, simplest form in that sense. And yeah, if we ever look at any part of art, we always, or anything we try and do, we try and, as a chef, you try and get back to that simplest idea. What are we trying to say? What's this dish trying to do? And you try and hone it down, hone it down and perfect it and make it the most simplest creation of that. And for me, that is enough. I don't need any more. As long as that carrot or whatever that is I'm trying to, you know, create and make better, then that's all I need to do. That is enough for me.
0: Were you doing that when you were a MasterChef uh, semi-finalist? Was that is or has that kind of evolved?
1: The MasterChef thing was an amazing experience for me because... I was in those early stages where creativity was more of an artistic form rather than a sort of a cooking form. And it was just about that creative explosion of just trying to put as many wild and crazy flavors together as possible. And I went a couple steps too far, which is why I got knocked out. I did a dish called, and my family and friends still tease me, partridge in a pear tree. It was just, it was a concept. that was never meant to even go any further than that, to be honest. And I, I did it and it was a massive mistake, but I learned so much that, you know, the thing I learned was a just be yourself and just exude yourself because that's all you can do and be um again just hone down to that simplicity what are those ingredients trying to say what can you do with more with less ingredients um so yeah I think that's been uh the start of me learning that for sure
0: yeah brilliant let's go through some of your food moments um the chickpea scotch eggs with aioli. Now, this is an example of zero waste cooking and also the byproducts that you talk about. T- tell us a little bit about that. What are you using as the byproduct there?
1: So for me, yeah, this is a perfect example of a really easy zero waste dish where we are turning what we normally think as a waste product into a byproduct. And I sort of coin them as byproducts because in nature there is no waste. Everything just gets turned into something else. So, in this recipe, I buy a tin, a can of chickpeas, and um, specifically the chickpeas uh, are from Hodme Dodds because they are sort of the pioneers of the new sort of grain and pulse world. Uh, they grow chickpeas in England, you know, for one of the first times ever, and they're organic and they're amazing. Amazing for the soil, amazing for crop rotation, and, all, and everything to go with that. Um, so, yeah, buy in a can, I drain the can, and that liquid left over, something called aquafaba. Um, which a lot of vegan plant-based cooking is using as the replacement for eggs, basically in in, in meringues or or mayonnaise, in mayonnaise. So so in this sense, what I wanted to do was to sort of show that you can make a sauce out of the byproduct. So the chickpeas go in to make uh, that beautiful sort of mixture filling for the Scotch egg. Um, I've got loads of sort of spices and herbs in there to make that umami, f- meaty flavourings that going on. Uh, and then I use the byproduct, which is the aquafaba, to make the mayonnaise. Now, what I'm doing, even though I'm still using eggs in this recipe, but the eggs are there to, to, to be an egg. I'm not using the egg just because I, you know, it's there to do a, a purpose. It's there to have the flavor of the egg. So I buy really beautiful, organic, well-looked-after eggs, that beautiful chickpea mixture going on. It's deep-fried, crispy, salty, umami, you know, fatty, all those sort of things. And then you've got this very light... And um, savory sauce to go alongside it, and it's. I find that it's lighter because it's not uh, using an animal product. During actually, after the the first lockdown, I did start to head more, much more towards that plant based diet, including um, you know oat milks and stuff and stuff like that. And I find that that whole process has made that my food lighter as a result. Mm. Even though I've got amazing dairy producer suppliers around us. Um, but that lightness coming from plant-based products was, was a bit of a revelation for me.
0: Yeah. And when you put that on the menu at the pub, do you explain that Dodds is, you know, growing British pulses and that though the British pulses have been grown on British soil f- since the Iron Age? You know, it's quite extraordinary that we don't associate the pulse we associate it with it's italy or even the middle east do you communicate that to your to your customers
1: so it's a really difficult one to get right because i think with all things sustainability is that well with every dish that you create there's a there's a million stories to go alongside it it's like we're just talking mm. there and i can't tell every single customer that so you've got to yeah. and, and also you don't want to be preachy you don't want to come into the pub feeling god hang me. what's the lecture going to be this time you want them well, just to Dan, come in.
0: Dan Barber. Oh, yeah. Dan Barber says that he uses his waiters to do just that.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, I, mean, I mean, I love Dan Barber. He's just such a, the, the icon of, of this world in, in many ways. Um, he, he has a different format of a restaurant. You know, he, he, people go there yeah. for his... To have reason.
0: a lecture. Yeah, to have
1: a lecture. <laughs> to, yeah. to be wowed by the story because he's such yeah. a great storyteller. Yeah. so maybe I'm not a great storyteller I don't know um <laughs> but um he yeah so I mean you know and at the end of the day we run a pub so we've got to be yeah. a pub which is the every person's place to go and eat and drink they don't want to be too overwhelmed by yeah. the the history or the story of the food so yeah we have to get it over in like little ways and it might be just a little wording on the menu saying English chickpea scotch egg Uh, all the way to just going oh these are from uh, Norfolk or um, by the way yeah the I you know the Ioli was made using the byproduct and I think it's about that curiosity and opening the conversation in a very fun friendly way which I think this movement needs to do away from that preachy world which maybe it has been for the last 10 years
0: yeah, yeah, I can't, there's nothing worse than waiters coming in interrupting your conversation <laughs> again yeah. with another amazing fact that you really <laughs> didn't need to know. Um, your second uh, food moment. You grow your own cannellini beans. That's quite new for you, isn't it? That's your f- second food moment.
1: It is my second food moment. So, yeah, I... Once I had sort of reset up the restaurants and the pub and everything was going well, I could step out of the kitchen a little bit more and focus more on what was happening around the garden. Uh, and I just love getting my hands dirty. It's like that whole creative process in the kitchen, soil, everything. So, yeah, planting was a massive thing for me. And we started growing, I guess, easier things to begin with. And they were like broad beans, strawberries, uh, uh, cannellini beans, potatoes, beetroot, chard, that sort of thing. Kind of easy. So, anyway, cannellini beans into the soil four months later up they come sort of the, well they come up and uh, an up they shoot all the way up they look beautiful they add architecture to the garden and people can go oh yeah i can see what you're trying to do here so yeah and they are very bountiful in their products they're very tall so actually most people can grow them on any sort of size garden in a pot i mean my grandmother used to just have pots everywhere of just beans all over the place beans 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 so yeah so can beans up they go uh and i remember picking them and i took them back in and I thought, what are we going to do with this? Come up with this dish. What's the dish? What's the dish? And I did the cannellini beans in this sort of, very sort of traditional Tuscan stew. And I roasted off an aubergine and put it on top. And it just, you know, even though the flavors probably did work, it just looked at it and I thought, that's not, no, that's not right. I'm taking away from the bean here. What I've done here is to grow the beans myself. Be- beautifully, I make this, this amazing Tuscan deep umami stew. And now i put an aubergine on top. It's sort of taking away from that beauty of that whole story. So I took the aubergine off, just a little bit of oil, and it was genuinely one of the most amazing things I've ever had. It was, um, uh, I used to, well, I still do go to Italy uh, a lot, and I love Italy. I spent a lot of time in Puglia, uh, which is that heel of, of Italy. And, um, again, one of my favorite restaurants ever is, is there, a guy called Pietro Zito, and it's Anticci Sapori is the restaurant, and he's the farmer as well as the cook. And he says that he owes everything to the land, you know his food is the land and that's the whole point as you know everything's connected um and again i had a dish very similar there it was just uh fagioli, which are beans with oil and just yeah. cooked so simply and when something is so that's what we we're talking about earlier what is enough when something is simple it's deeply satisfying and it just says so much story and so little that's when food is at its best
0: Yeah, and of course you bring the olive oil over from a single estate and it's the same people every time. So you really know them, you know their land, you know their story. So by bringing it back from your wonderful experience you've had in Puglia and bringing it to your customers, I mean, there's a wonderful sort of circular nature about that, isn't it? It's all about story.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. It's all about story and about personal creation. And I think once you've been to the land, I've seen what they do. Tommaso is a great friend of mine now. There's a little funny story. My mum and dad went around Italy. They were driving along and um, just thought they'll turn off on this brown sign. And it was the olive oil farm. They met Tommaso. And then, you know, dad said, you've got to go meet the guy. So I flew out there, you know, a year later. Just become great friends with other people. And I think that's part of that organic world is just becoming great friends with people who care. Yeah. And you share yeah. those stories.
0: Yeah, oh, it just feels great. Um your third food moment is the coffee ground bread. Now, I haven't tried this yet, but I'm definitely going to do this. This is a no-brainer. Tell us, how, tell us the background to it and then tell us what it tastes like.
1: So you spend every day uh, in the kitchen on a pass... And you're sort of you're there early in the morning and suddenly the front of the house come in and they're then cleaning up the bar and doing whatever pieces. And every morning I'd watch the coffee grounds go back and forth between the bar and the waste bin. And I was thinking that's just going into the bin. But, you know, coffee is a is a great organic product. It's a, it's a natural product. Um, I've only extracted the juice out of it, so what, well, not the juice, but the flavoring out of it, there must still be something left inside. So, you know, you, you taste a bit of it bitter and it's grainy and disgusting and bitter and all those sort of things, but you think, well, let's try and do something with it. So, because it had that texture of the graininess, we, our, our first thought was to put it into a bread. About 10 years ago, my grandmother uh, gave us a canapé at Christmas, and it was a little cracker with some manchego cheese, some honey, and coffee granules. And it was a sort of an idea that Jamie Oliver uh, had come up with that she said, look, let's give it a go. And it was absolutely delicious. It worked super, super well. But in the back of my mind, I always was a bit you know, unhappy that it was just the coffee granules from, you know, instant coffee. I thought well, there must be a better way of, of doing this. Fast forward five years later, we started up the pub. My cousin, Rosa, who uh, is an incredible chef, but she's in the paleo world. So she decided to come up with a cracker that was all based around almonds. So we had a little almond cracker, which had the coffee beans inside it as well. And that was with manchego and truffle honey. Again, super delicious. But I was still using coffee beans, which wasn't a byproduct. So anyway, go forward five years later, and we now get to creating a bread made of the coffee waste, uh, which has this almost stout like bitterness but mm. it's deeply almost chocolatey um and rich and tasty and nutty and in fact we're pairing it with spelt flour at the moment so that spelt flour increases the nuttiness going on yeah so i go back to the original idea and go well it's cheese and honey so it obviously makes the perfect welsh rarebit combination so now we just serve that as our welsh rarebit bread and it's a classic pub dish that's been transformed by a byproduct which is coffee waste
0: extraordinary absolutely fantastic and you're using it in tart cases now and panna cottas.
1: yeah it's just again it's it's a flavoring isn't it i think it's it's not that coffee taste we're probably all familiar with but as i was saying it's that stouty bitter nuttiness that you kind of recreate so in tart cases i'm using it with tiramisu's tiramisu tarts um in panna cottas, you're flavoring it with like sort of delicious cob nuts caramelized and candied with a little sprinkling of maybe a little bit of chocolate Because I think in some ways, one of the bits in the book, I I say that we should only sort of use 50% of the product within 30 miles. So the other 50%, we can sort of feel that we can import. It's not completely doctrinal in that sense that we have to do one or the other. It's we have a relationship with our own 30 miles, and then we also have a relationship with the rest of the world. And that's really important to do with global trade and increasing other people's lives around the rest of the world and also flavors for ourselves. But there's a balance of getting the flavours that we want from our own country versus the flavours we can get from another part of the world.
0: Yeah. I mean, you guys are all saying the same thing. Dan Barber, Trina Hahnemann, you know, it starts with delicious. All that creative alchemy starts with how can we make this amazing? And, And you do. Your fourth food moment, I can barely even say the words because it just makes me salivate. Tell us about the plum kernel creme brulee.
1: So, yeah, I mean, this was a, a recipe that whilst we were doing the, the photo shoot for the for the book, um, the food stylist, a lady called Valerie Berry, Berry, who's amazing, she said it was the best creme brulee she's ever had. And I was sort of blown away by this. And it's one of those things, we all sort after vanilla, don't we? Vanilla is, and it's become almost a, a, a what a super premium product, more than saffron. It's so expensive. And I know restaurants have actually stopped using it because of that. So we sort of look for what's around us. And what can we do instead to make our creme brulee taste even better than vanilla and even more unique and more local. So uh, we've got a very bountiful, beautiful plum tree at my mum's garden. It's a Victorian plum tree. So the kernels, the plum stones are nice and big. You crack into the the stones and inside it sit two little gems and they're like little, tiny little kernels. Uh, But they have such an impact on flavour. So there is a laborious task to sort of cracking into the stones and getting all the kernels out. But once you find that flavor and it's such a pure almondy sweetness that comes from it, your mind just starts going, Whoa, 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 what can I do with this? What can I create with this? Um, and what we, found it is, what we found is that the best way is to sort of roast them off and that gets rid of some of the toxins inside it. You do have to toast them off. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also accentuates the nuttiness from that, so you've got that really nutty, almondy, marzipan flavour, and then you put them through the cream and the milk, and you simmer it through, you blitz it all up, strain it, sieve it, and then set it in your panna cotta, and it's, um, sorry, not panna cotta, you set it in your creme brulee, but I mean, you could do it in a panna cotta as well, but yeah, yeah, you cook it off in a creme brulee, and it's just so deeply marzipan and nutty and almondy it's so savory and so sweet at the same time it's it's unctuous absolutely unctuous and uh again simplicity you know it's just really good cream really good eggs and just one byproduct which is free from a plum that you didn't even know existed until you look into the very small and i think that's what's amazing it's looking to the small to try and find the beauty in life
0: Thanks for listening to Cooking the Books. You can buy and Join the Greener Revolution or any of the books on the show by clicking on the bookshop tab at juli.smith.com. And I'll be back next week with Navid Nazir, the executive chef of Deschoux, to talk about the book of the Bombay Irani Cafe phenomenon. I'll see you then.